0: Welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Chris Kitchener.
1: And me, Gareth Tennant.
0: In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And
1: this week, Chris, we're delighted to be joined by Larissa Brown. She's an award-winning journalist and the defense editor of the Times. She has years of experience reporting from conflict zones around the world, including Syria, Libya, and Afghanistan. Prior to joining the Times, Larissa was the defense and security editor at the Daily Mail, where she spearheaded the newspaper's much-praised betrayal of the Brave campaign. It fought for interpreters who helped to fight the Taliban, to be given sanctuary in Britain, and won Campaign of the Year at the British Journalism Awards 2018. Larissa has recently published a book called The Gardener of Lascogar, a book that we'll be discussing today, along with the quite serious content of the book, or subject of the book, which is about the failure of the British government to support the asylum claims of interpreters that worked with British forces such as myself in Afghanistan.
0: So Larissa, look, thank you for joining us. Um I have to say just at the start, and I know this is a little bit of a podcast cliche, but I I really, really enjoyed the book, and we should say The Garden of Lashkagar is the book available from all good bookshops. Um, as you know, as our listeners know, we 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 try to relate business leadership and management in this podcast but we heard this story and myself and Gareth uh, went to the Henley Book Festival which is when we we're introduced to you and then obviously we followed up and, and read the book The Gardener of Lachetergar but what was it was really interesting personally this felt like a story that was actually important to tell as um uh, as a, a veteran makes me feel old but as an ex-member of the military and Gareth as well but also, I think that there are definitely elements of this that I think are useful for us to take away as leaders, as managers and as how to do things. So maybe let's go back to the beginning. Larissa, you, you've written this fantastic book, The Gardener of Lash Gagar. What started you on the journey to go write this story?
2: Well, I was I was leading a campaign that um, started in 2015, and the campaign was to try and help Afghan interpreters get to Britain. At the time, um, not that many interpreters were allowed to the UK and uh, myself and my colleague, David Williams, who I was working with at the time, really believed that they deserved to come to Britain and we were hearing uh, really horrific stories of how interpreters were being shot at, their family members were being killed, they were uh, facing intimidation, death threats on their doors. And this was all as a result of their service with British troops um, in Afghanistan. And so we started off this campaign and this went on for years and years and years as we tried to persuade the British government to change their policy on the interpreters. And this sort of all came to a head in in August 2021 uh, during the withdrawal where, you know, when British and American troops were obviously uh, flying those final flights out of the country. And I came across a man named Scheister Gull. He had been the gardener at the main operating base in Lashkar Gah during Britain's involvement. And he had a son called Jamal Barak, who was an interpreter. And they ended up reaching out to Jamal Barak because he was really uh, fearful that his father would be uh, caught by the Taliban and killed as they got closer to
0: Lashkar Gah. How did you sort of start to get involved, even in the campaigning? I mean, was it something that you'd reported on? Was it people you'd met? I mean, you talked about meeting with Jamal. How how did you sort of start all of that relationship?
2: I was in um, I was in Camp Bastion uh, for the final flight out of uh, Helmand Province in 2014. So that's when you know the British were uh, leaving uh, Helmand Province for the very last time, and they were ending that combat mission in Afghanistan. After that, there was just the security and assistance mission, mainly out of Kabul. So that was my first trip to Afghanistan. And after that, it was just that Afghan s- interpreters were just reaching out to us. They'd heard that um, we'd written a one story about a man named Popol, who was an interpreter that was executed in Iran as he was trying to flee Afghanistan. Um, and then we just had many more contactors, and we felt that we needed to start telling their stories. And then, I, I mean, over the years... There were the most incredible, um, incredible cases, you know, really shocking ones where interpreters had been left abandoned. And when it came to Shyster, who I I first started talking to in August 2021, his case, his case just seemed so astonishing that I really felt that it needed to, you know, it needed to be a book, really, because his family went through so much as a result of their service with the British that it just needed to be
0: told. And I, th- I think that to me, as I was reading it, was the I, I had expected to read about the gardener of Lashkagar. But then when you started to tell the stories about each of his family members and extended family members, it's almost each of those as a book book in itself. Perhaps you can tell the, the the listeners who who maybe haven't read the book yet. Can you can you tell us what? shyster and i i think that's the correct pronunciation as i was reading the book i was thinking ah oh, this is this is dangerous i'm gonna get these pronunciations wrong but can you talk mm-hmm. about what shyster's role was because we'll we'll talk in a minute about jamal and the role of interpreters but shyster wasn't an interpreter in fact didn't speak english so what was his role with the british yeah. Army?
2: yeah so so shyster was the gardener at the at, at the mob he'd been employed to basically cultivate a small patch of land and turn it into a garden, and what he created was this beautiful area, an oasis of tranquility, is how it was described to me. Where soldiers and officers who were serving um, in the province could go and sort of escape from from the horrors of war. And what I found extraordinary is every single soldier and officer that I've spoken to that's, that have been to, that's been to the mob, uh, they all remember that garden and a lot of them also remember Shyster, and I thought that was quite incredible because I think if you speak to people outside of the military, nobody's ever heard of, of the garden at Lashkagar, and I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book. And I felt that, i read a lot of books about Afghanistan from the point of view of um, of troops, and they've all been you know incredible, but I just also wanted to write something that was from the perspective of the Afghans who who were there with the Brits at the time. Um, because you know their stories are so important, and the repercussions as a result of that that time that they served have been quite quite astonishing. And so that's you know that's why I wanted to write the book. And Shyster, I feel, played quite a pivotal role in some people's deployment out there.
0: Well, it's it. I mean, what was interesting to me was it it was there's elements of being very british which is in the middle of a war zone employing someone to create a garden but (laughs) but i thought i think and and maybe this is something for you gareth that practicality of and we'll come back to the family in a minute but that practicality of a a war in in the middle of a foreign country but that a, a the, the British military found it important enough to create this little haven. And to your point, and you you give lots of examples through the book, everything from individual patrol leaders to, I think, Gordon Brown had a photograph taken yeah. in there as well, that, that this is considered important by the military that they would invest in it. I mean, uh, Gareth, just what was you when you were at Serving? How did you... Managed to separate the, the the fighting from life. How did you how did you relax or how did you sort of uh, what was your equivalent of of sitting in the garden of Lashkar?
1: Thanks, Chris. It, it's, it's unfortunate I never managed to to get to the garden in, in Lash. I heard about it, but I was forward deployed into Sangin uh, and then later into a, a town called Garrest. I think I might have flown into Lash-Gar, uh in the middle of the night and helicopter for about 20 minutes, um, but I didn't get to see the garden, um, which is a real shame. But it's an incredibly important thing to be able to do. And you've alluded to this, the idea of having those moments of normality in and amongst something that is so alien to you know, normal life. And we've talked previously on the podcast about the management of stress building resilience in teams and we've talked about the need to be able to compartmentalize the the stresses and pressures of things that are going on around you one of the things that really really helps is to have those tiny little aspects of life that feel normal whether that's a phone call home whether that's sitting in a in a a garden And, and for those people that have never been to Afghanistan and have only probably seen sort of footage of it on the news. Especially down in Helmand Province, it's a very arid place and almost everything is beige. The dust is beige, the ground is beige, the buildings are beige. And so, apart from the Green Zone running down the the, the Helmand River Valley, um, there aren't gardens, there aren't areas of of lush greenery. So. The The ability to walk through you know, something that isn't going to resemble home, but has that kind of feeling of, of normality, uh, and a calm space from which you can reflect, remember, and, and sort of gather thoughts is incredibly important. One of the things we did have, though, was we had dogs, uh, working dogs, that were so military working dogs that had sort of met the end of their working life as a sniffer dog or or whatever, the guard dog or whatever they were doing, um, that were then used as effectively dogs to pet and cuddle and, and sort of spend time with, which probably sounds quite odd. You know, you've got hardened warfighters in forward-operating bases, but just being able to sit down with a creature that's only gonna show you unconditional love and kindness is a, is a really important thing and I, I suspect the garden of Alaska Guard provided you know a similar kind of mental reprieve to to what other than that is 24 hours a day is routine admin fighting, thinking about fighting and and constantly dealing with the continual threat of you know being severely injured or killed
0: and I, th- I think you captured that really really well in the book. And that, to me, the reason why I sort of asked that question of Gareth as a person who was there is it was more than you might think a garden is. You might say, well, a garden, what do I care? in a gardener. But actually, fundamentally, and we'll, we'll talk, maybe talk about Jamal in a minute. Actually, it was really important to the people there.
2: Well, well, we'll also, actually, just following on from what Gareth said, um... For example, one officer took his took seeds from the from the flowers that he'd grown in the UK to the garden in in Afghanistan. So that was I suppose him sort of bringing a bit of taking a bit of his home to to Afghanistan. So that's you know another example of the way that you could sort of cope with that those mental difficulties out there.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a a sort of poetic tragedy to the fact that. Another aspect of of allowing the the garden to be grown in Las Jagar was was probably a statement about where we, the British, wanted the future of Afghanistan to be. And whilst most of the, the British military effort in Afghanistan was hunting down the Taliban, providing the security and the space for the rule of law, there was definitely always a linking this to what the future we expected Afghanistan to be and what we were all working towards and I think there's as I said a, a poetic tragedy to the fact that that just didn't happen and not only that but the people who were working with us Chaska a girl who literally was the gardener was also then abandoned with the with the hopes and the dreams of, of where we wanted Afghanistan to go it's a deeply difficult subject for, for me to, to sort of talk about. And, and I wasn't in Afghanistan in, in 2021. Um, I was overseas, though, so, and, I, and I watched it unfold. And I still can't get my head around forgetting the the strategic failure, forgetting the decisions to actually withdraw. The, the lack of linking what we've done there tactically on the ground and the people we've done it with, to the decisions we made in the withdrawal, the lack of empathy and the lack of sort of recognition of the contribution that the the Afghan people had made, it's personally very, very difficult for me to come to terms with and and I found reading your book, and I haven't fully read it, I haven't had time, uh, and i will I will continue to do so, but reading it i I found deeply frustrating. And it, it, you know, I, firstly, I, I want to say to you, kudos to you for for fighting this campaign and really helping to to bring this to the attention of, of the British people. But how how did that happen? How did the how did the British government, who I don't think you know, this is a deliberate strategy of they were always going to abandon these people. I I and I also don't think they're bad people. And certainly not as a as a collective group. So, so, how does it get to a point where where we make such terrible decisions as we realised that we were going to have to withdraw
2: in twenty fourteen or twenty
1: twenty one or both? Both really, yeah,
2: both. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in um, in twenty fourteen, and this was this was the problem is that they came up with these two policies, and uh, one of the policies said that if you were an interpreter that had served at least a year in Helmand province on an arbitrary date in 2012, then you could come to the UK. Um, and the second policy said, well, you'll have to prove that you've been intimidated to be able to come to Britain. Um, that intimidation policy was just unfit for purpose. It just it never worked. They never believed any of the evidence that they were given and they never accepted anyone. The first scheme, you know, interpreters did come to the UK under that, but it was just such a narrow criteria; it was just ridiculous, um, and there obviously just wasn't the political appetite to to bring these people here. And and perhaps, in fairness as well, in you know, in twenty fourteen, the interpreters and the other other workers, you know, chefs, mechanics, labourers, all the other um, locally employed staff. Um, perhaps weren't facing um, as extreme threats, maybe, in 2014, as they, as they did later on when the Taliban were taking over um, more of the territory in Afghanistan. But then over time, it became really quite clear that these people were at risk and that they were being targeted deliberately because they were classed as the infidels. They were the spies, of the, the eyes and the ears of the British forces. And that's one of the things that we have tried to get across in our stories. We tried to show that they were being um targeted deliberately. And, you know, minister after minister just ignored us, um, and civil servants didn't do much about it. And eventually, when Ben Wallace came in, actually, as Defence Secretary, he, he, you know, he was a former soldier, he was in the Stott's Guards, he had had served overseas before, and I think he really realised the value of interpreters. Um, and he just had a different attitude. He did want to do something about it, and, and actually he did change the policy a couple of times mm. uh, to allow more more interpreters in, but also to widen the criteria so others could come in. And it was under that policy eventually that actually Scheister managed to get in, but he was originally rejected to come to the UK.
1: Okay, yeah, it's probably worth explaining for, for our listeners what the role of uh, an interpreter is, in Afghanistan wars. Um, well, let,
0: let's do that with, with Jamal. So I've, I've yeah. mentioned the name Jamal. So to Larissa, perhaps you can sort of give a quick introduction to Jamal. I think it's worth talking about his age as well. And then that leads us neatly into sort of what the role was. So who's Jamal and, and how does he play a part in the book?
2: Yeah, so so Jamal Barak is Shyster's is son. And when he first saw American troops in Afghanistan, he he was just desperate. Desperate to join in some way, he was desperate to learn English, and he, you know, tried to try to become an interpreter. He was turned down originally because he was too young, and then he had another go, and this time he lied about his age. He was either sixteen or seventeen at the time, and he was accepted. So he ends ended up uh, on the front line within a, a few weeks. He didn't have any training. He was shot at, and he then. Uh, ended up in a in a different job in Lashkar for a few years, working with the with the police. And he, I mean, he 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 liked the the role as an interpreter. He really um, enjoyed it, but it wasn't without risk. And you know, Jamal and other other interpreters I spoke to that Jamal had known, or other interpreters I just ended up coming into contact through the campaign, would tell me of all the of all the um, letters that they'd receive of people chasing them in the streets on motorbikes. And, it, it, you know, it was a dangerous job for them. But, of course, it was also, you know, they get paid a good salary. So it was, it was you know, a lot of people signed up, uh, not just for the money, but also because they thought by signing up to, to the military, they were helping um, Afghanistan become a, a safer place and a more prosperous country. But, of course, that, that never turned out like, like, they'd, like they'd hoped.
1: All of the interpreters I worked with were motivated by belief in the rule of law and the the mission that you know the coalition were were undertaking in afghanistan alongside the the afghan government um of course money money is important and and like say that they are well were well paid but the role itself is, is interesting they're interpreters not translators so they speak the, the various languages of Afghanistan, mostly Pashto or Dari. But they were they were there also as cultural advisors and interpreting the nuances of conversation with whoever the the British or American or, or which, whichever force they were working for, whatever conversations were being had. Now that quite often would be going out on patrol with combat forces and having conversations with local Afghans in the streets and villages of of Helmand. And, you know, as a result of that, they are with frontline combat forces and are at the same risk, if not greater risk, than our, our combat troops. IEDs, ambushes, on top of that, depending on where they were in Afghanistan, would depend on, you know, quite often they would then go home to their families, and their families are also then at risk as well, so, so there's an increased risk on top of just the, the risk of going out on patrol with, with combat forces, and I'm not sure that's necessarily fully understood by you know, the public at large.
2: Yeah, and, and also what, what the army did try to do is employ interpreters from further afield and then bring them to the, to the place where they were operating so they wouldn't be recognised. But actually in the case of Scheisse, for example, as the gardener, he was going from his home just around the corner to the base every day. You know, people, the locals knew who, they, who he was, the locals knew he was working with the British um, and they recognised him. And years later, that became one of the big problems, actually. And also in the case of Jamal, um, he was going in and out of the the local bases, the police station, et cetera. So again, he was also recognized. And Gareth, you were just talking about interpreters being, you know, out out on the the front line. One of the problems in the early days was that they weren't given the same body armor as uh, the troops. So they were, you know, if they were targeted, then they'd they'd be dead. So that was just also so terrible. Um, And that was changed later on but only after an interpreter actually campaigned for them to get the same quality of body armour.
1: Yeah, I, I remember being being out there in 2007 and being you know, really quite shocked that body armour that we decided wasn't fit for purpose was being issued to the local employees, particularly the interpreters. You know, the helmets and the body armours they had, they were unarmed, and yet they were always next to the troop officer the troop sergeant they they carried what were called icon scanners the caliban and various other um, insurgent forces in afghanistan would talk to each other on vhf radios in the clear so unencrypted which just meant any kind of scanner radio scanner would be able to pick up on those conversations so the interpreters would carry these icon scanners and listen to the conversations that were being had and then tell tell us what was going on so we would in advance know whether we were being observed whether we were about to walk into an ambush or or whatever it was but that meant that they were really visible because they were the the Afghan face amongst the British troops standing next to the officer carrying a very distinctive piece of equipment and they were wearing different uh protective clothing that not only was less protective but also highlighted who they were and i remember being completely dumbfounded by this back in 2007 and like you say it didn't change for several years and i think that kind of probably gives us a sense of the the institutional arrogance and the fact that we we didn't treat these people the same way we treated ourselves which i think is probably the seeds of the problem that grew into abandoning them later on. And I think we have to collectively, as a military and as a political system, sort of really take stock of the fact that we we probably saw ourselves as sacrificing you know our own safety to go over to Afghanistan and, and the various other places where we operate to to try and help out. We kind of give ourselves a a status of, you know, it's it's almost the the hero status of us going to rescue them and not really recognising right from the beginning that they're putting as much on the line, if not more, than we are. And I think if there's any lessons we can take from this going forward as a military, forgetting that the political decisions for the moment, you know, we have to start treating people the way that we want to be treated, treating people the same way that we treat our own people. Because I think right from the off, we we were setting the conditions for this to happen.
2: So there was also a problem with them covering up faces. So a lot of the interpreters were obviously used for quite high level um, interviews or interrogation um interrogations of prisoners, and they they didn't they didn't think to wear scars to cover their face because they thought, well, this prisoner will be locked away for the next few decades, and you know we'll have um, we'll be in a completely different Afghanistan. And obviously when, when, when we pulled out, that, that wasn't the case. And suddenly these interpreters had their faces exposed to senior Taliban operatives that were now, uh, you know, running free.
1: We need to take a short break now. We'll be right back.
0: give a really good example in the book and I'm going to I'll get the facts slightly wrong but an interpreter was called by his real name i think by a british yeah. army officer who then came and i think this was on record it was being recorded or something and the british army officer came back afterwards and apologized because use of his real name in itself was highly dangerous but isn't isn't that interesting i think i think people reading this will think well you know if you're in the military Bad things can happen. But I what your book tells really well is that was the least of their problems, in a sense. The idea that you would go onto a battlefield and you might be shot or killed by an IED, which happened. And you talk about that a number of cases. But as I read the book, I think I became more and more horrified by the knock-on effects. So, um, So you talk about Jamal in the book and, you know, Actually, I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert, but go read the book and you'll see how everyone does at the end. But we've got Shyster, who's the father. We've got Jamal, who's one of the sons. But we actually have other members of the family, the wives and the other sons. Perhaps you can talk a bit about Mahoud. And I, I don't know whether I got that pronounced his name correctly. But he had a shocking time, including when Shyster was leaving, whether or not he came. Perhaps you can talk a bit about Mahood, because I think there's an... It's this example of it's this knock-on effect, not just of whether you served as an interpreter, but actually there were lots of other reasons you could be implicated.
2: Yeah, so this was Mahmoud, one of his one of his other sons, and he um had been shot at, he'd been left um left disabled, he really struggled um to walk at all. And he had he had acted as an interpreter, like Jamal, but he wasn't employed directly by the British Army, he was employed by a contractor. Uh, so that meant he didn't qualify for sanctuary in Britain. And he, uh, so I mean, his story was just, was really heart-wrenching because got, got finally gets accepted to the sanctuary in the UK with his wife and his younger sons, but Mahmood was just over 18 and so he was the only uh, son not to qualify uh, for a visa because uh, he wasn't considered a, a, de- a dependent. And so the night that Scheister finds out that he can come to the UK is kind of like a bittersweet moment because he's obviously really happy for for, his, for himself and his wife and, the, and, the, and his other sons. But Mahmoud is absolutely devastated because he isn't on the list. And Scheister has to make this decision whether to leave him behind or go and try and get on a flight. And and in the end, he you know, he does decide to go and 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 try and leave for the sake of his other sons and also you know he was he was the one that was most at risk um but you know it's a lot of the a lot of the afghans i spoke to were having to make decisions like this all the time because they couldn't take everyone with them and the british government was was being really strict with the criteria and um and mahmoud i mean the story does there is a happy ending for mahmoud thankfully um but not all of the family members got out
0: so, so when you've spoken, I mean, I'm imagining that as part of the campaign, you've spoken to people in the British government about this. How are you seeing that change even towards today? Because am I again, I, I can't quote the numbers off the top of my head, but my understanding is that we've actually brought over a very small percentage of the interpreters and people who we might otherwise support because of their involvement. How many people, in inverted commas, have we left behind? And how is that attitude changing the government? Or is it not changing? And I say that because I've heard regularly on on question time, we have this programme to bring people back from Afghanistan. But that was really jarring when I read the book. And it felt like there's two different truths, both can't be true. So how's that changing? And, And what's your sense on that?
2: So it was really difficult to get people out in the in the earlier years. So, you know, 2015, 16, 17, 18. And then Wallace came in. He did obviously expand the criteria. More interpreters came, but not enough. And then as it came up to the withdrawal date of August 2021, the government was trying to get more people out of Afghanistan. You know, they realised that actually these people could be, uh, you know, imprisoned or killed in a matter of of, of weeks. And and now in the last, so the latest figures from August were that there's about 400 eligible Afghans still in Afghanistan. Now that means that those people have, have qualified for sanctuary in the UK, but they haven't yet got out of the country. And then in August, there were also 2,000 of those people stuck in hotels in Pakistan. So it's still a really significant number, but I mean, tens of thousands of people applied Sanctuary in the UK is impossible to know how many of those worthy interpreters that have not been uh, deemed eligible and are still, you know, face no prospect at all of coming to Britain. Um, I did speak to one recently who did just manage to cross over the border into Pakistan, and he said that he knew of somebody else that hadn't been told that he could come across. So there are interpreters still in Afghanistan, and it's it's getting really hard to to get into Pakistan. And now there's a new uh, rule that the Pakistani government's brought in that says that if you've not got a visa, um, then foreign nationals have to go home. So it's going to get harder and harder to get these people to Britain as the time goes on.
1: Whilst the figures like 2,000 and, and you know another 10,000, based on the fact that for each individual and their families, they are at personal risk, that is a very, very large number. But in the grand scheme of immigration this is a tiny tiny figure and so the fact that we're making it difficult based on what I interpret to be more of a political statement rather than the the cost to the nation do you think that's a fair assessment
2: yeah I think well I think some of the cases are, are ludicrous. So for example I wrote about a case in the book and and followed up followed up on that case a few weeks ago in the times where a an interpreter and his wife were living in Britain and their 3-year-old son um was rejected. The UK government said that because the dad wasn't earning enough money as a taxi driver he couldn't financially support the 3-year-old so he couldn't come to Britain. Uh, the three-year-old has been without his parents for two years. He's forgetting who his mum and dad are and thinks his grandparents are his mum and dad. And that case was just utterly astonishing. And since we were, highlighted the case, he's now been told that the his boy can come, which of course is the right decision. Now, obviously, politically, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one at the moment. More generally, because there aren't enough houses, they don't know where to accommodate. All of these people, and of course there's lots of people coming illegally on on the boats. and the the policy of the government was to not allow any more to come from the Pakistan hotels because there wasn't room enough room for them in Britain. But I mean, this problem could just go on forever and uh, these people have been told they can come to Britain. They're waiting in a hotel. Some of them have been there for over a year. Their children aren't going to school. And um, they're actually in Pakistan technically illegally. And we've got a moral duty to to help these people, and you can't just you can't abandon them at this stage. And they just got to get on with it, um, and there just has to be a solution. Uh, it, and
0: yeah, it, it sounds like something that happened multiple. I think that that's a really interesting point. In the book, you talk about multiple people who have taken matters into their own hands and effectively said, "We have no, we have no." I'm using my words very carefully, safe route out of Afghanistan. And so I think you talk about a number of these interpreters who who paid smugglers to get them to the United Kingdom. And that just strikes me. I think that serves to prove your point, which is if there was a clear and safe route, people wouldn't have to do this. And these are people who are used to hardship and who are used to danger and putting themselves in danger. So for those people to choose. To be smuggled across the country at great personal expense, I think that actually shows how difficult the situation is for all of those people as well.
2: Yeah, well, over the years we've spoken to interpreters who have ended up in you know places like Calais in the jungle, um, in other third uh, countries because they've been rejected for sanctuary, um, and they've been so fearful of their lives in Afghanistan that they've had no choice but to leave um, and, and pay smugglers, as you say. And then later on, actually, you know, when they change the criteria, they'll then they've then found, oh, actually, I am eligible. But then to get to the UK at that stage, once they've already arrived somewhere like Greece, has been much much harder. And it, yeah, it's, I've just been shocked so many times over the last few years over the various policies on this.
1: Okay, so in in this podcast, we we quite often talk about the the link between individual decisions and wider strategic sort of criteria and the link between having a collective vision and the actions that individuals across an organization take when i read your book when i read articles about the the challenges that interpreters and and the and the various other local nationals that worked for the security forces throughout two decades in afghanistan I get a deep sense that this is right and wrong. This is really clear that at a, at a very local level and an individual level, these are things that we should be doing. How does it get to a point where the policy at, at, a, at a sort of general level is so out of kilter with, with things that at a, at an individual level are so clearly you know, questions of right and wrong? And, and as you say, there's a moral imperative to this.
2: You know, this is a this is a question that I used to ask because I, I could never understand why the government would, would not budge on the issue. We had so many veterans um, and and serving serving soldiers as well that were supportive of of our campaign to, to help interpreters. Um, it just seemed like a complete no-brainer to me and we had this petition that was signed by thousands of people the public were on the side and um, you know and the daily, it was the Daily mail that I was doing the campaign with, you know, then I later moved to the Times, and you know, for the Daily Mail also to to really be to really be pushing for interpreters uh, to come here was quite quite a, quite a thing in itself. Um, and I just thought, fourth, the ministers are going to change the policy. Like, why would they not look at it? There's just huge support for this because you know members of the public felt that we it was a duty. You know, it was our moral duty, and. And I just couldn't believe that it. it was just so difficult to get it um, changed in, in the first few years. Uh, it was just it, it was just ridiculous. And um, so yeah, I just I can't I cannot understand it. I can't understand it it. it. it seems, but
0: I think I think you're sort of touching on something really interesting, which is both of you. I would struggle to see anyone in the UK across the political spectrum that would not be willing to say these people put themselves on the line. And are in grave danger, and therefore we should support them and bring them back. And even, even there are obviously there are a number of people who think that immigration is a problem. To your point, both they, they tick the box in terms of loyalty to the crown and they tick the box in terms of it's not a hundred thousand or a million or whatever the number might be. But there's something. Have we have we created an environment where we can't even talk about this? Because you're you're either on the side of, we don't want people coming to this country or we do and there's no middle ground because this would seem to be the ideal middle ground where people could come together and say we might disagree more broadly about the strategy but actually in this case we can agree but it almost feels like it's such toxic territory for people to to come towards that we'd rather run away from it i I don't know i mean um you're, you're close to this, and I guess you get to speak to some of these policymakers, Larissa. What And also, just because your readership, both at the Mail and, and the Times, what's your take on this? Why is it this is such a, a difficult, difficult topic when it shouldn't be?
2: Yeah, I I just don't. I just never really got it. So, for example, you'd write a story about an interpreter for the Daily Mail and the, the, the reader's comments were what you sort of expect them to be. Um, you know, they felt that these people were deserving of a life in Britain. Um, and there was no real question about that. Uh, the same at the Times, really. Again, people feel that we have a duty to these people. You know, I've heard stories from um, like, the mothers of soldiers that have died out in Afghanistan that had been told by their sons how valuable the interpreters were. And then they would really supported the idea that they should be here. Um, and so I can't, I could never, yeah, I could never really fully understand why it was so difficult to get the, the policy change over over so many years. And more recently, of course, there's been a lot in the news about people coming on, you know, illegally on, on the boats, and there not being enough room. And so perhaps I would argue actually it's been harder recently to get people supportive of bringing more over because... Obviously we've got a lot of people coming from Ukraine as well, and uh, there's this sort of idea that you can't really help everyone. And actually, when I write stories that happen to be about um, an interpreter's family, for example, so not just the interpreter, but of course, there's risks to their family members. When I start to go into sort of the family member issues, then I think that the public perception changes slightly because
0: then it's like, well, how
2: long will the list go? You know, how long could it be? You could end up bringing lots and lots of people. So it's, it's a really, really tricky subject, but generally I have found that the public have been really supportive of the campaign overall, um, and <laughs> certain ministers have.
0: It touches so interestingly on this point, though, of loyalty. And, you know, we talk about individual teams, but I think this this is one of those things that stretches, which is, and I think you make this point in the book, which is, to some degree, this there are people around the world who will participate in future conflicts, who will have the choice to support the British Army or not support the British Army or the British government. And loyalty matters and people remember loyalty. And so yeah. I think that's true whether you are a government organization, a military or an individual team. It feels like this is perhaps, a uh, you know, an extreme version of that but it really matters do what you say you are going to do be consistent be empathetic and I think there's another piece here as well and and you talked about Ben Wallace and I can't remember the phrase you used in the book which was sort of more the human approach rather than it being there's a there's a rule set let's be
2: yeah
0: these things so important it's so easy to forget those and that the and I, I, there's a risk this sort of almost gets a little bit political. The statement you made was the readers talk about, well, if you let family members, how many will come? Yes. And I think that's the theoretical. Well, that's fine. Let's just talk about these three people. Let's just yeah. yes. never mind. Never mind whether there's a thousand of them. We'll get to that. Let's talk about these three people. Look them in the eye should these three people be able to come to the United Kingdom? Because, and and you you we've we've sort of almost skimmed over this. You talked about intimidation, and you, I apologize. I keep saying in your book, go go read the book. This is a book you should absolutely read. But we're not talking about going down into your local village and having some local yobbo shouting at you. Intimidation means they come banging at the door and say, "We know who you are, and we will yeah. kill you unless you leave." Um, Mahmood, um, I think I've got this right. The intimidation was they banged on his door and they dragged him to jail and then tortured him in jail. So I, I think there's yeah, this like, there's this element of loyalty matters. It is not a badge, it is not a thing you write about in great hero stories, whether you're the smallest team or you're this large organization. Do do the right thing by your people, and they will look after you. Because the next time, if in twenty years we happen to go back to Afghanistan, there'll be people going, "I remember what happened the last time. Good luck. I'm, I'm I'm not willing to put myself in that danger."
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the arguments that the government made for for so long, the UK government, was that they didn't want to bring the interpreters out of the out of Afghanistan um back then because there'd be a brain drain. And the argument that then the politicians and we were making as campaigners was that well you're not going to have any of them of them left because they're all going to be dead because they're just having to move from place to place all of the time and they're not going to survive um if you don't get them out. And and you're absolutely right that a lot of politicians as well that made the point, you know, politicians that were supportive of the campaign that if you don't Help these people. Then, when you go to, go into the next war, exactly as you said, Chris, you're not going to have anyone there to support you. And these interpreters are absolutely crucial. Um, crucial. You can't. You can't. You can't carry out, carry out a war with, without them.
1: I, I think it goes beyond interpreters as well, and, and I, I think you you kind of allude to this, which is that the, the knock on consequences of eroding trust in what we do. And foreign policy and overseas intervention operations are always mired in controversy. There's always different interpretations of the law, of what's right and wrong. And ultimately, at the very blunt end, once it becomes a military intervention, we're talking about the use of lethal force. And and you know, rightly, there has to be public debate and discourse around where we do that and how we do that. But equally, What's also absolutely crucial is that the international community sees us have been on the right side. We have to stand up for the values that we believe in. And what I think is so tragic about this whole situation, apart from the tragedy of the individual cases, because, of course, that is also heartbreaking, but the, the bigger tragedy is the erosion of our influence and trust around the world. As, as an organisation, as a nation, and as a culture that stands up for what we believe in and what's right. And I don't think the, the politicians who are making these decisions are thinking strategically about the long-term impacts. And I think part of it is the nature of our political system, that they're thinking about you know, the next election or the next manifesto or... or Or whatever the short-term thing is that is in front of them but there are going to be significant and there are significant knock-on effects that mean that this this story you know only just beginning i think and where we go in the world and what we do is really really important and and yeah i just think this is such a massive own goal let alone the individual tragedy and the, and the moral imperative to help people that you know, we've depended on, I think we've also damaged our own credibility and our own ability to influence. Yeah, I agree. Well, look, it's been a, a fascinating and somewhat depressing uh, conversation. But Larissa, thank you ever so much for your time. Uh, and thank you for everything you do for for what is such an important cause. For our listeners, if you haven't already got the book, then please go out and read it because, as Larissa said, there are lots of books about Afghanistan written from the perspective of global leaders in geopolitics. There are lots of books about Afghanistan talking about the individual actions and small team actions of soldiers in combat, but there are very, very few books that tell the stories of the people that really really mattered in the afghan campaign and that was the afghans themselves and this book exposes some hard truths about the way that we operate as a nation the way that we've operated in, in the specific cases of those people that depended on us and i think larissa's book really brings that to life right by telling very very personal stories and i couldn't recommend it more so
0: yeah i i 100% agree and actually i'm going to challenge you while the conversation we might have had in a sense focused on the negative things i think one of the things about the book while it is harrowing at times actually ultimately there is an uplifting story in fact there are multiple uplifting stories the the man who whose passion and joy is to create gardens that's his joy that's uplifting the the young man who wants to do the right thing and finding his way in the world and manages to get back to the UK with his wife. And and fundamentally, um, while I'm not necessarily, and I don't want to spoil sort of the ending of the book and the summary, but um, while I don't think it's fair to say it's all perfect, actually, I think there are some good news stories at the end, specifically around the family. So I I would echo everything uh, Gareth said, Well, worth reading. In fact, I think more than well worth reading, important to read because I think it reminds us all whether we be citizens of the United Kingdom or whether we be people who are trying to learn how to do the right thing with our people and teams. This is a great book to read. So, after all of that, thank you, Larissa, and thank you for writing the book. It's it's been a real pleasure talking to you as well.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Wonderful.
1: So, once again, the book is called The Gardener of Lashkar The Afghans Who Risked Everything to Fight the Taliban by Larissa Brown. You've been listening to Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant, and with Chris Kitchener. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please consider subscribing and please consider telling your friends and family. If you want to get in touch with us, if you've got comments or questions, we're available on email at battlingwithbusiness at gmail.com or on the platform previously known as Twitter, X at BattlingWithBiz, that's biz with the Z. But that's all for now. Okay, thanks very much. Bye-bye.